How many of you thought you'd be driving the Christmas Eve service and that you were going to hear a live birth tonight? <laughs> an, an edited version of a live birth. True. Hey, live nativities are a thing. <laughs> the night of July 20th, 2011, I was not expecting to drive home and help deliver a baby. That afternoon, I'd finished playing in an intramural softball championship game, which we won, <coughs> and the team and I were at the Bidwell celebrating our season. Tracy and I talked on the phone a few times while I was there, and she knew that she was starting to go into labor. I offered to come home, but she was confident we had plenty of time. We were still two weeks away from the due date. Our oldest son, Chase, took over 30 hours to arrive after the labor started. So in my head, I was planning for a long night. We were not rushing to get out of the house, and at the time, we were about a mile from Manchester Hospital. Even if our car was to break down or something was to go wrong, I knew we still had plenty of time to get there. So I thought. But if you couldn't tell by my voice in that call, nothing that night was going according to the plan for us. When Tracy went from asking me to call the doctor to give them a heads up that we'd be coming in soon to screaming that the baby was coming, I was freaking out. <laughs> I must have looked like a deer in headlights. And I remember asking her, what do I do? And then she just told me, call 911. To say that I like to have a plan is a bit of an understatement. Um, I schedule my day in 15-minute increments. I'm constantly double-checking that I have all my I's dotted and my T's crossed. I make meticulous lists. Uh, pregnancy was no different. When I was pregnant with Chase, I um, took a class. I learned hypnosis. I read all the books. And when I was pregnant with Claire, I actually did my master's thesis on childbirth education and wrote a curriculum for it. Um, I knew the doctor's rotation by heart, so I knew who I was going to walk in to see, whether I went on Monday or Tuesday. Um, needless to say, there's no chapter in the books on what to do when your baby arrives unexpectedly in your bathroom. <laughs> that day shattered every expectation I had of how my baby was going to come into this world. The only thing I could be sure of is that she was going to leave her home of nine months. But how that was going to happen, well, that 911 call wasn't exactly the story I would have written. But it's my story, and Keith's, and it's God's story for Claire. God doesn't always write the stories that we expect. And that's certainly true for a young Nazarene girl named Mary over 2,000 years ago. The Christmas story actually starts in Genesis and unfolds throughout the Old Testament. Here we meet a God who makes a promise to redeem his people, to bring them back to him through a savior, a messiah. And then he orchestrates and allows thousands of years of crazy stories to fulfill that promise. Our story tonight starts in Luke chapter 1. Luke opens up his gospel by explaining that he got his information from eyewitness accounts. And so we can be fairly certain that Luke actually talked to Mary um, about the circumstances around Jesus' birth and his life. So Luke 1.26, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. 
The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked, since I'm a virgin? Though the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So here we have Mary, minding her own business, going about her day, when an angel comes and tell her, tells her she's going to get pregnant with God's baby. I'm going to guess this wasn't really something she had in mind before this particular moment. You'll notice that the angel doesn't come and ask Mary to submit, to repent of anything. He doesn't even tell her to do anything. This whole announcement is a rejoicing over God's plan that would totally interrupt Mary's plan. It was an announcement of God finally fulfilling his promise to Israel. He says the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So as a faithful Jewish girl, Mary's already expecting that someday God's going to fulfill his promise of a Messiah. And now she's being told that this promise is being fulfilled by a baby. Her baby. Gabriel calls her favored. But favored wasn't going to be what it had been in the past. Favored's not going to be Israel winning a battle or taking over a nation. It's not going to be reward or wealth. Mary's favor is actually going to look like an 80-mile trip while pregnant an escape to Egypt because someone's trying to kill her child, her son the Messiah becoming best friends with the low lives of Israel, and eventually her kneeling at the foot of a cross while her firstborn son dies, one of the most excruciating deaths known to the world. God is blowing up what favored means. Mary expects God to fulfill his promises, but she can't expect for him to do it in a way that makes sense to her or in a way that she would choose. But Mary says to Gabriel, may your word to me be fulfilled. And we see in Mary's reaction what it means to follow God, to open up your life to the unexpected Christ. Thanks to the writings of one of Jesus' closest followers, Matthew, we get the firsthand account of what Jesus' adopted father does when life doesn't go the way he expected. There's really not much that's recorded about Joseph in this Christmas story. In fact, some even refer to him as the forgotten man. But even though there's not much that was written about this blue-collar carpenter from Nazareth, we learn so much about his character through his obedience to God's instructions. So we'll pick up our Christmas story in the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, we could probably imagine that, that Joe was a simple, practical man. We learned that later that he was a carpenter, which meant that he worked with his hands, most likely with wood and stone. My guess is he had a good reputation in his community. He probably attended the synagogue regularly. And he was probably planning on marrying his fiancée, uh, raising a, a young family, and earning a steady living, and then moving somewhere in the suburbs of Nazareth. And then comes the day when he learns that his bride-to-be is pregnant. 
I cannot even imagine or fathom what goes through his mind when Mary first tells him that she is pregnant, but not by him or by another man, but with the Holy Spirit? Really? His reaction to Mary is where we learn so much about the character of Joseph. It's clear that he doesn't really believe her at the beginning. But instead of accusing her of lying and disgracing her, which would have likely led to her death, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. How many of you would have this type of restraint if you were put in this situation? Continuing in Matthew, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. I wonder if Mary threw an I told you so in there somewhere. At this point, it has been 400 years since the last prophetic words of God were delivered to his people. Seeing angels was not an everyday occurrence. Joseph was a carpenter. He was a man who, was understand, who understood what he could see, touch, and feel. He was an orderly man who liked the predictability of physically building and having his work inspected, putting together a plan for building a project, and having the satisfaction of seeing his projects completed. But now, all of a sudden, he's being asked to put his faith in something intangible, and not to mention something just really, really weird. Joseph had to be questioning why in the world would God choose him, an ordinary man from Nazareth, to be the stepfather of his son. Remember, we hear later in the Gospels the people say that nothing good ever comes from Nazareth. But God is deliberate. He chose Joseph, knowing the type of man that he was. And we could be confident that if God chooses us to do something, he knows that with him, we can handle it. And even though there's going to be times when we think that God is the wrong person for the job because he works in a way that we don't expect, he is faithful and he will lead us through it. Whatever we're faced with, and God did just that. He led Joseph through it. And that's not to say that it made the road any easier. It took a lot of courage for Joseph to say yes to this. Joseph knew the ridicule, the shame, and the exclusion that taking Mary as his wife would lead to. And the humble surroundings of this young couple meant that others would quickly know that Mary was, going to, was pregnant. And that would mean that Joseph and Mary were together before marriage or Mary was unfaithful to him. Their simple, everyday life would never be the same again. Reputations would be lost. There would most likely be friends and family who disowned the young couple. So more than likely, Mary and Joseph were depending on each other for support during that second trimester. They were probably trying to keep things as normal as possible. And then Luke tells us, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. I'm going to assume that up until now, Mary had some sort of loose birth plan in her head. 
There weren't exactly copies of what to expect to expecting laying around or Nazareth Hospital Lamaze classes to sign up for, but she had probably been seeing local midwives, learning some techniques for pain management or breathing strategies, just getting some basic understanding of what she could be, be in for. So one day Joseph pops in and says, so I gotta go to Bethlehem and I think maybe you should come with me. We don't really know why Mary ended up going with him. It's likely that she didn't really need to go, that just Joseph needed to go. Maybe because of the scandalous pregnancy, they didn't feel safe leaving her there. Um, or maybe they didn't have anyone that they could trust anymore, um, that they trusted to keep an eye on her. But regardless, an 80-mile walk to Bethlehem was not part of the plan. I think sometimes we envision her on this journey, you know, smiling and caressing her stomach as she gracefully rides in on a donkey. But in reality, this was four straight days of walking outside in a dangerous country, super pregnant. I'm guessing there were more than a few occasions where she was fed up with this little hike that Joe had her on and was crying out to God, why on earth are we doing this? This is the worst timing ever. And haven't we all been there? When things aren't going the way we expect, we wonder if there's any purpose in this journey, any meaning to this trudge towards a place that we can't see and we don't understand. We've been on that road, following God's will, submitting to him, and still life's hard. The way's confusing, it's painful, and God doesn't always step in. He doesn't try to make it easier. For Mary, this journey was part of God's plan, even though it wasn't part of Mary's. Hundreds of years earlier, the prophet Micah said, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from old, from ancient times. We can expect God to fulfill those promises, but we can't expect it to be in a way that we would choose. So they go to Bethlehem, and Luke tells us, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and <coughs> placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. We're not given many details about Jesus' birth. And because of that, tradition is filled in some blanks. We are told that there's no guest room available for them. Some translations have this as there was no room in the inn. But the Greek word here is, excuse my Greek translation, katalama, <laughs> uh, which translates as a lodging place or a guest area. It's actually the same word that we hear Jesus use later on in Luke to talk about uh, the place where the Last Supper will be, that upper room of someone's home. And this makes a little more sense from a historical standpoint. It's likely that Joseph would have sought out relatives to stay with in his own hometown. Um, and the strong sense of Jewish hospitality at the time would dictate that somebody probably would have taken him in, even if they already had other relatives staying in the guest room. A typical home at that time had a living area for the family, the katalama, or upstairs, and then a small area a few feet lower where they brought the animals in um, at night. So no guest room was available for them, but they could offer up this smaller space for their relatives. We're also told that Jesus was laid in a manger, and tradition follows the logic that mangers are found in stables, and so Jesus must have been born in a stable. And maybe that's the case. But these small village homes also had mangers built into the floors of that lower area, so that may have been where the baby laid. But regardless of the accommodations, this is not where Mary expected to have her baby. 
she may have had some time to get used to the idea. We're not really told how long they were in Bethlehem before the baby was born, but she may have found new midwives at that point, or maybe just Joseph helped her. We don't really know. And while Luke doesn't tell us a lot about Jesus' actual birth, he does provide us with enough detail to let us know this is not what Mary and Joseph expected, and it's not what we expect. And after hearing about Jesus' birth into this young family, this poor family struggling to survive, we can see why the nation of Israel would reject this notion of Jesus being their king. We can see how the birth of Jesus is the complete opposite of how the ancient world envisioned their savior coming into this world. This is not at all how they envisioned it. For years, they studied the prophetic words of Isaiah and Jeremiah. If you were a Jew raised in Israel, familiar with the Torah and the promises that their king, their deliverer, would be a mighty God, a wonderful counselor, a prince of peace, someone like the heroes of their past, like a Moses or, or like a King David, someone who would crush the head of the enemy, which is prophesied all the way back in Genesis 3.15 then you have to imagine that they were expecting their Savior to just show up, to just kind of appear out of the sky, to rule from a throne and defeat the evil and take over the government. They never expected their, ba their, major, their Messiah to be a ma baby laid in a manger, born to a nice guy like Joe or a young teenage virgin girl that no one's ever heard of, in a town that wasn't even a blip on the map, not Rome or Jerusalem, but Bethlehem. To be a baby wrapped in old cloths who wouldn't, couldn't even feed himself or change himself. And we learn in Matthew 2 that besides the social status that the young family would lose because of the virgin birth, they would also be in danger of losing their lives. Joseph would later have three more dreams that we learn about. Dreams to flee from Bethlehem to Egypt, to return again when King Herod dies, and then to retreat back to Nazareth to establish their home. We have to imagine that Joseph never planned on beginning his first few years of marriage living on the run. And we would never expect our Savior King to start his human life as a refugee. And then you consider Luke chapter 2 and the way that Jesus was announced into this world. The first people group that God is telling is a group of shepherds in the outskirts of Bethlehem. Thanks to Christmas pageants and modern day nativities, we get this glorified version of, of what a shepherd is. But back then, they were just considered lowlifes. They were smelly. They were unaccepted in society. They were thieves. People parents wouldn't let their kids talk to. And because they were constantly walking around in sheep dung and touching dead animals, according to Jewish law, they were always un ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. So these shepherds would never even be allowed to worship in the temple. No one grew up wanting to be a shepherd. And I think it's part of the reason we have added the wise men to the modern nativity scene. We expect and want our king to be given gifts of gold. We want the affluent and those in a society who have influence to welcome our king. For him to get the red carpet treatment. But not to burst your nativity bubble, but the wise men probably don't visit Jesus until he's a toddler. We expect God to make the birth announcement to an elite in society, but instead, he chooses a group of simple men to be the first to see, worship, and celebrate our Lord. And I love the language that's used in Luke 2. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. Joseph and Mary, who come from the lineage of King David, the greatest king in Israel's history, the man who God sought to rule his people, shepherds, 
because he was after his own heart, began as a simple shepherd. And now the first people who God announces his entrance into the world into the, as a group of shepherds, keeping watch over their flocks, sometimes God sends the least likely messengers in our lives to deliver his word. And this is a great reminder for us not to allow the quality of the messenger to distract us from the message. The message that God came into this world, not as a dictator or the emperors of their time, to gain fame for themselves, but instead as a shepherd king who would protect his people and give his life for his people. A king born to a young couple in Bethlehem who would lead the perfect life, never committing a sin. A king who would be greater than David. A king who favors the powerless. God made a promise of salvation to his people. But no one could expect how that would play out. And that's the good news. That's the gospel. That God promises eternal life if we put trust in his son. But it doesn't always play out how we expect. We expect God to open the doors of heaven to people who are all put together. Who do and say the right things. Who are good enough. But Jesus isn't born in our sterile hospital rooms. He isn't found in our carefully planned out and perfect little places that we like to create for him. Instead, we find him in the stink and in the noise, the out of the way and hard and smelly places of life. He's born in the places where nothing seems right, the places we try to hide from him, the places where we think we're all buttoned up, but in reality, we're just falling apart. He's born where nothing is as we think it should be. From the moment Jesus arrived, he destroyed and transformed all of our expectations. He transformed a feeding trough into a royal bassinet, shepherds into celebrities, and a young mother into a, the mother of a messiah. Jesus doesn't enter our lives looking for the places that are pretty or easy or comfortable. He comes into our mess, and he transforms it into something amazing. There's no other faith that says God became flesh. No other religions where God wrote himself into the story of humanity. Isaiah called him the wonderful counselor. And the best counselors are those who have lived through the experience of the people they are counseling. And that's the Christmas story. God went through infinite lengths to send his son to the earth in the most unexpected, unimaginable ways possible so that we could know him personally. So that no matter what life throws our way, he understands. Jesus, the baby king, fulfilled every one of God's promises, but he did it in a way that we would never expect. Let us pray. Father, Lord, we acknowledge that our lives are not perfect and clean, that we are not perfect and clean. And no matter how hard we try, Lord, we can't be. But you were. You left heaven to become human, to understand us, to be vulnerable just like us, and to die for us. And we thank you for sending your Son, the baby king, to come into our imperfections, our mistakes, our sins, and to transform them. Forgive us, Lord. Come into our hearts and make us new. Amen.